With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hashtag sisters-in-law. <laughs> in Portland, Oregon, and with me today are my sisters, Jill Wine-Banks. <laughs> Joyce Vance. <laughs> Kimberly Atkins-Stone. <laughs> and I'm Barb McQuaid. Well, we're just so delighted to be here with you. We've had a wonderful time in Portland, and tonight we're going to be talking about some ep uh, issues in the news, some legal issues. <laughs> just, a few. just a few. Some of the topics we're going to talk about tonight are the E. Jean Carroll verdict, <laughs> the George Santos indictment, and the Title 42 issue on the border. So that's a, a challenge. And of course, our favorite part of the show, and it's gonna be extra fun tonight, is answering your questions. So I have some instructions for you. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do our, our three topics, and when we're done with the three topics, we have microphones here at two spots, and we'd ask you to step up to the microphones and ask your questions, and then we'll answer them. So as the show is going on, be thinking about those questions. And by the way, I'm a law professor, as you may know. <laughs> None of this, I have a comment and a question thing that people do. It is a question. You may ask a question, we will answer them. Hey, thank you. Love to hear that. Well, before we get started, before we get started, we, uh, we always love to have a little chit-chat, so I'd love to hear about your um, experiences in Portland, your travel stories here, or what you've had a chance to see. I've been here since Tuesday, and I've had a chance to see so much with my family. It's been wonderful. But Jill, what have, what have you had a chance to see here in Portland? Oh, I have loved it here, and in the audience is my goddaughter and her boyfriend, and my bridesmaid friend, and my host and her husband and we've seen the Japanese gardens, which if you haven't been to, you must, and the Oregon Jewish Museum and Holocaust Education Center, which is reopening on June 11th, and you must see it. It's really an amazing, amazing place. We've had great food, we've had great fun, great hiking. I got to see Mount Hood, and I also visited the Lewis and Clark 
campus because that's where my goddaughter is. So it's been, it's been fabulous. And thank you for being such a great audience. You're making us feel so good. Thank you. As usual, Jill's able to do more in one day than most of you have probably done in a lifetime. <laughs> oh, wait, there's one more thing. I learned how to bake a challah. I did it, I did it. I made a, maybe I'm saying it wrong, Joyce, no, it's help a me. It's challah. beautiful. Jill showed me the pictures. It's this gorgeous twisted challah. I was bread. So bread. Bread for those bread. of you who are not Jewish. Bread. She made bread. Bread. Exactly. <laughs> I saw the pictures. So. You know, I am exhausted just listening to everything that Jill did because I've had a great time in Portland. I have sat around, drank coffee, and caught up with some old friends. And? And knitted, right? But I mean, seriously, in the time Jill did all of that, and I, I will say it was very special, I was able to spend time with a friend I used to work with in Washington who I have not seen in decades and taste a little bit of Portland's amazing food. Um, I'd like to spend more time here. This has been pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. I love Portland, too. I've been here before. I've been to many of the places that Jill talked about, the Japanese gardens and the, the rose gardens, and, and just had a wonderful time here. And I intended to do that again, but it unfortunately took me uh, about 24 hours to get here due to some uh, technical difficulties with the, uh, the airline that I was flying. So I only got here today. Um, and <laughs> After. I'm glad I made it. Um, We're glad you made it. But after an unexpected uh, stopover in Chicago, and I couldn't even call Jill because Jill was here. <laughs> um, I, the first thing I did when I arrived was take a nap. Um, but then I went actually, so I'm trying to get to all 50 states, visit all 50 states, hopefully by the end of the year, because it'll be 50 by 50, right? I turned 50 this year. So I went over and had lunch in Vancouver on the waterfront, which was delightful. Vancouver people here. So now I, I count, like, you can't just set foot, right? You have to engage in commerce or have a meal or something. So I did that, that's, I did that for lunch. So that's been my trip so far. And unfortunately, I have to leave, in, I think, my, my flight boards in like six hours. But I'm happy to be here now. <laughs> Well, much respect in getting over to check off another state. I once had a business trip in Oklahoma City, and I rented a car just so that I could drive into Kansas, Missouri, and Arkansas and knock off four states in one trip. Much that's, respect. That's very close to my nerdy heart. I love it. Yeah. Well, I've had a great time. As I said, I got here Tuesday, and I'm uh, here with my family, and I've had a chance to uh, hike Multnomah Falls, which is beautiful. Uh, and see Mount Hood and Hood River. And then today, Joyce and I ate our way through Portland, right? We went to the, the, donuts, Pine, Street, right? the Pine Street Market and then Voodoo Donuts, which was, that was where it was at. Yeah. Although, you know, I ate light. I just had the mango tango because I didn't want it to, anything too heavy. So chose the fruit. Now, Joyce, I noticed you're knitting uh, as we are talking right here on stage. I always knit when we're podcasting. Normally, you just can't see it. <laughs> so I have a question for you from my friend Mojo. And Mojo's daughter is here tonight. Sylvie and, uh, and Asher are here tonight. Um, um, and Mojo asked me last time, in fact, she asked it in sort of the, the vein of um, Encyclopedia Brown asking Bugs Menia question. Wait a minute. Joyce said she was knitting on the plane. How is it, Joyce Vance, you were able to get knitting needles? 
past TSA on an airplane. Yeah, you know, so people ask that all the time. They're stunned that knitters can take their knitting on the plane. The reality is TSA is smart enough to know it does not want to have to face down angry knitters. <laughs> and, and really, since shortly after 9-11, you've been able to take your knitting on the plane. I really hate flying. So for me, if I didn't have knitting to distract myself with, especially going up and coming down, I'd be a really sad panda. Knitting makes it possible for me to fly. Well, we're glad you're a happy panda. So, <laughs> so, uh, so that's all good. Well, we're just thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for coming out to see us. We're really honored that you're here. Thank you. You know, Jill, I have had my identity stolen before, and it was awful. It took years to correct. It really caused major problems in my life. Has that ever happened to you? It happened this week. Oh. And I said, you have to get me a new debit card because I'm going to Portland and I can't go without having an ATM card. Someone charged $10.50, obviously, as a trial to see if they could get away with it. And my bank was not very helpful, I'm sorry to say, but I have an answer now that I know about Aura. Because did you know that your personal information is out there for anyone to find? Data brokers scrape public tax records and sell your information. It's illegal, of course, but they make it accessible to anybody. All we need to with a rape. And it's a quirk in the New York law that let that happen. But I want to go right into, so like, what does that mean and what's going to happen next? So Kim, why don't you talk about what's going to happen next? Yeah, so what will happen next and what has already happened is Trump's attorneys have filed an appeal. Um, and so while that appeal is pending, you have that $5 million uh, judgment. But that's not going to see the light of day until the process makes its way through, which can take a considerable amount of time in the civil uh, justice system, it works in itself much more slowly, generally speaking, than the criminal justice system. So this could drag out for quite some time. But, but one benefit is that it is in federal court. And generally speaking, appeals in federal court happen much more quickly than they would in a state court. When I was practicing law, there were some cases that uh, I, I did most of the appeals for my law office. And there were some cases in state court that I was working on um, in, in state appellate court, that happened, the judgment maybe happened three or four years before I even got to argue a case. But in the only case that I uh, helped try, bring to a trial in federal court, I argued that appeal in the First Circuit the very next year, which yeah, another year seems like a long period of time, but in comparison, um, it's, a lot, it's a lot shorter. So that will happen, it will go to the Second Circuit. I don't expect, given how carefully the trial was carried out and given how uh, careful Robbie Kaplan was in the way that she presented the case and given the Second Circuit uh, who sits on it that there's a chance in the world that any of it, I mean, maybe some very minor technical things may be upheld, but I'd really think at the end of the day that Eugene will be victorious. And the other thing that could happen next that, I'm, that we were actually chatting about backstage is that Trump keeps defaming E.G. Carroll. 
He did it on CNN, you know, he's done it on social media. He's saying the very same things that he was found to have, that led to the judgment. So I'm fascinated to see if other lawsuits might be filed. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But I want to stick with the money, which we're, you know, when is she going to get her $5 million? Uh, That's number one. But also I want to know, Barb, Talk about how the jury came to award her one million for this and one point seven for that and two hundred and eighty thousand for this and tw- talk about how the jury could have in three hours in less than three hours they not only found all the findings that they needed to make but they determined specific amounts of money when she hadn't asked for any particular amount. So talk about that. Yeah, it was really interesting, and I think it was probably a strategic decision by her lawyer, Roberta Kaplan. Um, You know, ordinarily, when I was working in the U.S. Attorney's Office and we were seeking damages or asset forfeiture or something like that, we'd have a lawyer standing by, you know, a whiteboard saying, you know, for this uh, this kind of damages, we, we've calculated it. Uh, there are this many years of life and this kind of wages that were lost, et cetera. And they would put real dollar values in there and add them up and say, and therefore we are asking for, you know, $1.8 million or $6.4 million or whatever the number was. And instead, uh, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer just asked the jury to find uh, what would be an adequate compensation for her. And so they went back and they calculated, and they did have a very detailed verdict form where they were asked about compensation for the battery, which was the sexual assault, about um, reputation repair, Mm -hmm. about damages for defamation, and then punitive damages, which is an extra bit if someone did the defamation particularly maliciously or wantonly. And so they awarded a bit for that, but they went through and they calculated different amounts for each of those things. But you know, my theory is why not do it the way we always did with just, you know put it, putting up the numbers? And I think it may have been a strategic decision uh, because Donald Trump's whole defense was she was just doing this for the money. Right. And I think if you go up there and say, here's the amount of money we want, it does kind of tend to play into that narrative. And so instead, by just saying whatever you think, what she really cares most about is getting her good name back. Um, and, and you decide what that's worth. And I think they gave her a pretty fair number with $5 million. But Kim, we were talking about this backstage and you said oftentimes in your practice, you did not ask for a specific, specific number. Yeah, rarely did. I mean, we obviously presented, as you said, evidence of the actual monetary damages. But at the end of the day, what we usually, the prayer for relief would be what the court and the jury decides is, is adequate compensation. Uh, as well as punitive damages, because you don't want to limit yourself. Also, evidence can come up during the course of even a trial that can change that calculation. And thirdly, on appeal, one of the most common uh, defeats on appeal for those on the plaintiff's side is that an award, uh, a, jury, a jury award will be reduced. And so we didn't want any of those things to happen. And we also wanted to have trust in the jury to understand Uh, injuries that are both tangible and intangible and be able to put a price on that. You know, that's so interesting to say that you didn't want to limit yourself, right? Because you don't want to ask for a number and the jury was actually thinking about a much higher number. Anybody ever watch Seinfeld? Remember the old Seinfeld show? (laughs) Do you remember the episode where Kramer spilled coffee on himself and he got his lawyer uh, to represent him and they were going into like what was clearly, you know, uh, know, the, the big corporate coffee place? And you see them sitting around talking about it like, yes, we have a Mr. Kramer coming in to discuss his settlement. Um, And so I think, um, well, let's offer him, what, about a million dollars? 
And then someone says, oh, and how about this? Is a throw-in. How about free coffee for life? Yeah, okay. And then he comes, and the lawyer says, now remember, you don't say anything until we leave. And he walks in, and they say, Mr. Kramer, we want to settle this case. We're very sorry it happened to you. We're prepared to offer you free coffee for life, and, and he steps up and says, I'll take it! <laughs> Okay, so how do you come back from that? Um, but, all right, you already mentioned that there was continuing defamation. And I, it is a really curious question about will there be more lawsuits by E. Jean Carroll? There is already one still pending, which you may have forgotten about. He defamed her when he was president. And there's a question about whether that was in the course of his job. I know, I, I have trouble saying it and keeping a straight face because it's so ridiculous. But that one, it hasn't been tried yet, even though it was filed first. And while it was pending on this decision about whether the courts would say it, he defamed her again after he lost. And that's the case that has already gone to verdict $5 million. But then he went on CNN and he did it again. So Joyce. What's going to happen? You know, it's such an interesting question. So I know Eugene Carroll, and, and I think it's important to say that just in case I have a little bit of bias in her favor. But it pains me to think that after everything that she's been through, she has to shoulder the burden of bringing another lawsuit because she's one person who's been really effective at holding him accountable. I mean, I think her lawyer, Robbie Kaplan, really has his ticket. But she could sue him again. And possibly she could sue CNN for holding the platform. How many people want to see CNN sued? Let's see your hands. Um, but it's fraud. Because, you know, they had a very good judge in, in federal district court in New York. And to sue Trump now, after the CNN town hall, it took place in New Hampshire and they would probably have to bring the lawsuit in New Hampshire. They might could bring the lawsuit in Atlanta where CNN is headquartered. And I'd be willing to bet they're trying to figure out how to bring the lawsuit in New York. Because as Jill says, Carol won. The older lawsuit is still pending there. So a new lawsuit could be joined with that and they, they could get the same judge. But you know, there is a tangible impact of Trump's redefamation of Carol. Some of you may have noticed that the judge who's trying the criminal case that the Manhattan DA brought has scheduled a hearing for Trump. I can't remember if it's this coming week or the week after, but he's already entered an order about discovery in the criminal case. Trump gets to see the prosecution's evidence, but the judges said, you gotta sit with your lawyers when you look at it. Like you can't surreptitiously take yeah. pictures of it, <laughs> right? And Trump also doesn't get to see everything, and this is unusual, but when it comes to information about witnesses' prior criminal history, the judge is limiting what Trump gets to see and prohibiting him. As he should. Right? Yeah. Remember, he also tears it up and, and throws it in a, the And there's a reason for that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's because he has inappropriately used and disclosed evidence um, that he has seen in Discovery. And most recently, and it may sound trivial, but he used stuff that he saw in Discovery in the E. Jean Carroll case 
to belittle and make fun of her. E. Jean Carroll has a cat named Vagina T. Fireball. <laughs> this is a family show, I'll remind you. <laughs> what's, what's the T stand for? I don't know what the T stands for. I, I will find out and we will reveal it in next week's episode. But you know, <laughs> thank you. And I appreciate the audience in Portland because you know, as soon as we get out of here, Barb is going to be like, I can't believe you said vagina. So wait a second. <laughs> Hold on a second. I wanted to go into the details of why there wasn't a rape <laughs> conviction, and I was told that Barbara would be too uncomfortable, so She'd I leave. couldn't do it. So, all right. Sorry, okay. Go ahead. So, where was I, right? But to the point, the judge is, is going to make, because Trump has abused information that he's received in other cases, in the criminal case, the judge is putting him on video for a, for a little sit down. Trump's lawyers will be in court, Trump will be video conference, and the judge is gonna read him the riot act about what he can and can't do. And you know what comes next. If Trump crosses the line, it's contempt of court. And I love watching the judge do it. So let me ask all of you a question because I think everyone in this audience will agree with all of us that E. Jean Carroll has been a hero. That she has... And she's, she's taken a lot of you know, pressure from him. But do you think that this is going to, both in terms of the verdict and just her being willing to do this, do you think it's gonna to lead to more women, not just suing him for sexual assault, but other women who have been assaulted coming forward. I know I had a very emotional reaction to this trial. It was, when Me Too first started, it was an intellectual, yes, Me Too. But this made me really relive the only true sexual assault I ever experienced and made me feel like and I did nothing about it because I valued my career and I knew that I would be risking my entire career because it was the chairman of the company and that's not a good person to file a complaint against. And there were witnesses, HR called me and said, do you want to file a complaint? And I said no. And now I look at her and what she has done and I just wonder if it's going to help in general in our society? What do you I, think? I think that it could, and it depends. So keep in mind that the reason she was able to bring this lawsuit is that New York changed its law and gave yeah. previous yeah. Uh, survivors who were uh, abused as, a, as adults one year, one year to get a case together and file a civil suit if that claim would have otherwise been time barred under the statute of limitations. And one of the reasons for this is because we saw in the Me Too movement that there were lots of women in the exact same position that Jill was in who were afraid of, for their livelihoods, afraid of re retaliation, who felt like they were alone, who didn't know they were one of many in numbers. And the Me Too movement allowed them to have a voice. And so this was a shot at justice. And so last year, New York passed that law. I believe California passed a law that was similar. Uh, my editorial board, Boston Globe, called for that law to be passed in Massachusetts and elsewhere because it's the same lesson that we learned. Yeah. It's similar to what happened 
uh, in past in, oh, about a decade ago in Massachusetts after the clergy sex abuse scandal where a lot of those cases were time barred and I talked to the attorney who brought a lot of those cases said look aside from just the fear and intimidation that these survivors have sometimes it takes them decades just to process what happened to them, right? Let alone feel empowered enough to talk about it at all, let alone in a court. So I, the idea, and I, we don't want to open floodgates of litigation, that's fine. You're given one year, just one, you had to file it within one year. And I think that is a good starting point in order to give people a chance. It's still, everybody still won't be able to do it, but I think that that is such a good model. And I think that this decision because of that is something every state lawmaker should be looking at that. I think that's so important, right? Advocating for those laws. Maybe this popularizes them. E. Jean Carroll filed her lawsuit on Thanksgiving Day, the day that that law went into effect. She was the first filed lawsuit. This is the first case brought under the Survivors Act. And I think it sets a tone. And her candor, her ability to talk about her thought process, I hope will encourage people to come forward because she said something really important when she testified. She said, I thought it was my fault. You know, I, I thought that it was wrong. I was flirting with them. I walked into the dressing room. I should have known better. I've always blamed myself. And I think she ends up being a role model for a lot of people, not just women, right, who will say, it's okay to have fun and to do things, and that doesn't give someone permission to commit a crime against you. I hope that's the message. Well, I think this case was a teachable moment for America, and I think also highlighted further change we need in the law. So, you know, for one, um, the judge asked the jury as they were being selected whether anybody would draw an in adverse inference against E. Jean Carroll because of the fact that she had delayed in, you know, by decades in reporting, and he said the record should reflect no hands were raised. Now, I don't know, I think Joyce, you raised this point, if people would feel comfortable, the peer pressure of outing yourself, like, oh, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but it was a little bit of progress, but I do think that there are a lot of people, you know, we, we get a lot of unsolicited email from people. Um, don't, no, don't get any ideas, bit. people. Don't get any ideas. Put your phones down. Yeah. You know, people who want to share, like, I think what you should say next time you're on MSNBC is. Uh, we appreciate it. We appreciate the suggestions. But I... But I, I did hear from people, and I know that you know prosecutors who are friends say it is a constant uphill battle to persuade people that this you know delay in reporting does not in any way undermine the credibility of the reporter. There are a lot of good reasons people delay yeah. in reporting, right? And in fact, they had an expert witness explain that. Uh, um, uh, she didn't scream. That is also a very common factor. Um, and so I think, you know, again, people who may not have known this before learned that not every survivor of sexual assault screams in that moment. Um, so I think that was a good aspect of it. But boy, um, you know, when Joe Tacopina, the lawyer for Donald Trump, was really beating her up on the stand, I think he himself became exhibit A about why people delay in reporting or might not say anything. You don't want to be re-victimized exactly the way he was re-victimizing her. 
And so one of the things I've learned recently is that in Canada, it is reversible error for anyone in court to even reference the idea that a delay in reporting should in any way cause someone to question the credibility of the complainant. And so I would love to see a similar change in our country to recognize that reality. So how are we doing on time? I have a lot more questions. I don't know. What do you think? Last question. Okay, so let's, let's, she's our host today, so she gets to do that. Um, I'm enjoying the power. <laughs> Robbie Kaplan, who was her lawyer, is another hero. She did a great job, right? And, and she had some really good tactics, and of course she had Takapina as an easy target for doing anything because he was really awful. But one of the things she was able to do, which you can't do in a criminal case, this was not a he said, she said. It was a she said, and he remained silent. He didn't say anything. He didn't testify. But in criminal court, you couldn't comment on that. In a civil case, you can. And I personally think they made a very effective use of his non-testimony in the closing arguments. What do you guys think about the tactics and this trial strategy that was used in the case? Go ahead, Joyce. Well, I was gonna say I thought it was very effective, right? The empty chair was not lost on the jury. And it let Robbie play these incredible moments from the deposition. That was a strategic call she made, by the way. She did not subpoena him because those deposition excerpts were admissible. And so she puts that decision on him, right? It's, it's a great strategy. What I have wondered, what I would love to know, you know, you've all seen it now, right? There's the deposition moment. She shows him the photo of E. Jean and says, <laughs> and who is this? And I assume, I don't know this for a fact, but I assume that she is expecting him to say, well, that's E. Jean Carroll. And then, he, then Robbie is going to say to him, well, doesn't she look like this picture of your second wife, Marla Maples? But of course, you guys know the punchline, right? <laughs> Trump is like, oh, that's my second wife. Um, Who I, is his type? I swear to think, right? <laughs> the whole case is over right there. That's the strategy. Trump doesn't testify, won't say it under oath, and she plays the video of him conceding that he has lied. It's a fabulous case. And she knew that Takapina wasn't going to call him to testify because he can't stop defaming her. <laughs> what if Ta Takapina's caught during a sidebar saying to the judge, Judge, you know what I'm up against here? <laughs> I think calling Donald Trump to testify would have been, by definition, legal malpractice. <laughs> I think that's a good hard stop. Right. Very good. <laughs> you know, I have been using Noom now for about a year and a half. And I have not looked back. I lost 45 pounds on Noom. Thank you. Let's just say the COVID years were not kind to me. <laughs> or I was not kind to my body. But I find that Noom has really worked. I have been, um, become a bit of a Noom evangelist. 
Uh, sometimes when my husband and I are out and some friend we haven't seen in a while say, wow, you look great. Have you lost some weight? I can hear my husband say, uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> and I'll tell them about Noom. Like, have you heard of Noom? Um, Noom's terrific. And Kim, why don't you tell people about Noom? So, you know, trends and fads come and go, especially when it comes to health and wellness. Noom is not a fad. They use psychology, not trends, to help you make intentional and sustainable choices that are aligned with your values and goals and build lasting results like Ms. McQuaid uh, is testament to. (laughs) Noom's psychology-based approach empowers you with the knowledge and support to build more sustainable habits and behaviors. It uses scientific principles like cognitive behavioral therapy to help you understand your relationship with food so you can align your lifestyle with what you want. The program helps you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have cravings and your daily lessons are personalized to you. So whatever your health goals are, the flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection, like that voodoo donut. That's okay. (laughs) And you can choose your perfect level of support from five-minute daily check-ins to personal coaching. It's helped us to change our habits because Noom Weight shows you how to pursue the goals you've set for yourself and gets you to meet them. The voodoo donuts were really oh, good, though. I had the mango they, tango. I mean, no, voodoo it's donuts, it's worth coming back to Portland just for that. So the numbers don't lie. First-time Noomers lose an average of 15 pounds after being active in the program for 16 weeks, just four months, and 95% of customers say Noom is a good long-term solution. Noom has even published 50 peer-reviewed scientific articles describing their methods and their effectiveness. So get empowered and stay on track with Noom. You'll get nourishment, not restrictions. And you know, it takes a lot longer to break a bad habit than it does to create it. And Noom will definitely help you to break those bad habits. And I did have a little cheat this time because I had a cowboy cookie. I'd never heard of one. That was really, really good. It's filled with chocolate. Mm, Wonderful. But stop chasing health trends and build sustainable, healthy habits with Noom's psychology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash sistersinlaw. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash sistersinlaw to sign up for your trial today. Also, check out Noom's first ever book, The Noom Mindset, a deep dive into the psychology of behavior change. Available to buy now wherever books are sold, even Powell's. Everyone can also find the link in our show notes. That's our favorite line. You can find it in our show notes. Well, take it away, Joyce, on our next topic. So y'all, guess what happened last week? (laughs) I love it when she talks Southern. Um, As you all know, New York's favorite freshman congressman, George Santos, got his ass indicted by the Department of Justice. in the recording, won't we? Bleep bleep that. Please please do bleep it. I got carried away. (laughs) Barb and I, I'm going to give Barb up just a teeny tiny bit because I love what she said. We were talking about it with some friends because that was fast, right? I mean, Santos got indicted really fast. 
There are other people who have not been indicted that quickly by the Justice Department. Um, <laughs> and Barb McQuaid said, well, you know, that's a United States Attorney's Office. Just United States Attorney's Offices act a lot more quickly than Maine Justice. And it's God's truth. Um, so I thought, though, that we would spend a little bit of time being nerdy about the law. Santos gets indicted 13 different counts, wire fraud, money laundering, stealing from the government, false statements. And it's worth going over those a little bit in turn. So Jill, can you start and talk with us about wire fraud? Sure. And of course, it's all part of three different schemes that he had going. So they all fit together for a variety of things. But he used a ways to raise money by lying about what it would be. He hired somebody who then said, oh, give money so that he can put his ads on TV. And then he bought designer clothing and did all sorts of Can other I things. just stop you there? Every picture I have seen of George Santos. <laughs> Where are they? You know, you can tell this is maybe inside DOJ stuff, and I know Barb's and my U former U.S. Attorney colleagues will appreciate this. This indictment came out of the Eastern District of New York, and they are not big on detail. If this had been the Southern District of New York, they would have told us what designers, because I never saw <laughs> He wears his sort of priest-like collar under his little sweaters, and I doubt that any of them are designers. So he must be hiding, maybe he's selling them. I don't know. Um, you think? Um, so anyway, obviously that was wire fraud. If you're raising money and say, Oh, gee, who else does that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's just too obvious. Uh, sorry. So he did that. But one of his more awful ones was that he also was taking unemployment insurance when he was making $120,000 a year. Now, that's not exactly the kind of unemployment that was meant by the COVID relief. So that's a really pretty horrible one. So that's theft from the government, and he used wire to do that. Wire is either telephone or any other federal system. And so I think those are two of the really horrible things he did. Um, well, there's so many other horrible things that he wasn't indicted for, including all of his lies and misrepresentations. So he did all that. He lied to the House by filing false papers that said he had certain amounts of money which he didn't have. Um, oh, who does that too? <laughs> Gee, are they brothers? I don't know. Could DOJ be signaling action to come? I hope so. Oh, that would be so good, yes. I mean, really, it, it, I, I honestly, yeah. it's, it's only as I'm talking that I'm actually seeing how overlapping these are. <laughs> oh, well, for insurance, this is worth a whole lot of money. But for taxes, it's not worth anything at all. Okay, so that's, that's some of what he did. Um, so that's the first bucket of charges, the wire fraud charges. There is also money laundering in, in this um, indictment. I actually once had a Dixie Mafia case where literally they were burying money in glass jars in the ground up in Sand Mountain, Alabama. And at some point, some of the jars leaked. And so we had evidence that one of the people involved in, in the scheme had taken like $100,000 in cash and was literally washing it and ironing it. <laughs> it was actual money laundering. 
not what George Santos was doing. He was nonetheless <laughs> indicted for money laundering. Can you explain? He was. Yeah, so money laundering is a great charge that prosecutors love to charge because it's actually not all that difficult to prove when people are involved in financial schemes because one of the things they want to do is to hide the proceeds or conceal it in some way or you know move it through financial accounts. So he's got three separate account, three separate counts of using the proceeds of a crime, in this instance, the wire fraud, and engaging in financial transactions. They have to be over $10,000 to, to meet the qualification, and he has to know that they are the proceeds of a crime, and there has to be a financial institution involved. But if you tick all those boxes, then moving money around is a crime. And so he's been charged with three counts of moving, I think, in increments of $25,000, taking them out of one account, moving them to another before spending them. And that's an effort to throw off the scent. But a little pro tip for the, all of you, it's the very doing of those transactions that kind of tips off the investigators that this is not on the up and up, right? If you're a normal person, you just put the money in the bank and then you spend it, right? You aren't moving it all around and doing all kinds of sophisticated, uh, convoluted transactions. Did I get that right, my U.S. attorney friends out there? <laughs> we got some former U.S. attorneys in the house. Let's hear it from the former U.S. attorneys. That was good, Barb. Thanks. <laughs> Barb gets really excited about money laundering in Rico. I think she's going to have a big year. <laughs> And I just want it known that I have a money laundering pin. And if you had asked me that question, I would have worn that tonight. But, oh well. Oh, well, future. What does it look like? It's a washing machine with a cat in it going around. <laughs> <laughs> Will you wear it next week? Sure. Okay. Sure. Okay, so Kim, the nitty-gritty charges. And this is, I confess, one of my favorites. 18 U.S. Code 1001, false statements to the government. Mm -hmm. If you're a politician, you can lie to the public with impunity. You cannot lie to the government. And Santos is also charged with theft from the government, just yeah. stealing government Aww. money. Yeah, yeah. So we Bad talked luck. to, Jill talked a little bit about the theft and, and stealing something of value, certainly unemployment, COVID-related unemployment insurance is something of value. So that seems to me a pretty strong case. The false statements is interesting. And so everything that I'm about to say, I learned uh, from the newsletter uh, that is written by one Joyce Vance. And so... Substack, baby, subscribe. I'm sure all of you are subscribed, but if you're not, if you're not, I think we can put a link. Where can we put the link? In our show, show notes? notes. <laughs> They make us say that a lot. <laughs> Find the link in our show notes. So the charges stem from statements that Santos made to the House Ethics Committee. <laughs> and what the standard is, is if these statements are materially false. Now, you may say, the House Ethics Committee... <laughs> is it your quotes? They haven't really done anything <laughs> about Santos. So, you know, what is it, how is it possible that anything he said in these statements could be material for what they're doing? Well, 
there's a reason that he can still be convicted of this. The standard is whether these statements are capable of misleading. And if we had a House Ethics Committee that actually worked as it should, false statements absolutely would be capable of misleading. So that is the basis of these charges. Hey, Jill, do you have a paper tiger pin, too? <laughs> uh, I have a tiger pin. <laughs> I think it's for Santos. Okay, so look, I have this question as well, though. Santos has been charged. I'm sure you guys all saw him, right? He, he was booked. He was released. Walking around Congress looking as smarmy as ever. I think the first bill that, that comes up for a vote when he gets back is this bill right about the right. ethics committee. It's ridiculous. But what's he going to do? Does he take this to trial, or is he going to plead guilty? What do y'all think happens? I think one thing in my time in Washington, I've been down there 17 years now, um, one big thing that has changed is in the past, there used to be something called uh, concern about one's reputation <laughs> and shame that would usually cause someone in this particular position to give up that particular office. That has changed tremendously. Now, as long as you deny it, uh, everything is okay, at least when it comes to one particular party. So I think in this case, I don't expect anything to change. It has been remarkable how uh, the leader of the House Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, has done absolutely nothing. I guess he did the minimum. He didn't put them on committees. But beyond that, he is more concerned about holding on to that five-seat majority than anything else that is about good government in any sense, or decency in any sense at all. So I think politically, and that's a question that we got a lot, um, is what what the constituents in New York, what, re what repercussions they have, what recourse they have in the face of all this. And the answer is really none until the next election. And not only has he given no indication that he's going to leave, he says he's going to run for re-election. So p politically, there really is no price to pay. We really have to wait for the US attorneys. If any justice is going to come, it's going to come from them. So can I add on to what Kim said? Because when you talk about there used to be shame, um, you know, I'm a Watergate prosecutor. Nixon resigned. He had shame. And it was the Republicans who went to him when we released the final tape, the one that's known as a smoking gun tape. It was Senator Goldwater who had run for president and the leader of the House and the Senate from the Republican side. And they said to him, if you do not resign, you will be convicted on the trial of the impeachment charges in the Senate. And so he resigned the next day. And that's just never going to happen in the world of Trump and alternative facts. We've got to get back to a time in our government where facts matter, where, where there's actual bipartisanship, because that's how things actually get done, not by this stupid fighting that we're engaged in. And so I really. I, I look back and think, you know, compared to Trump, Nixon was a saint, really. And he was awful. I mean, he was immoral, he was unethical, he was a criminal, he was a crook, despite saying, I am not a crook. But I think it's really important that we think about what kind of characters we are electing and 
get out there and vote, you know, be informed, be involved, and get out the vote. Hey, Barb, um, what do you think? Block or charge? Is it going to or go to trial? Um, I don't know whether he is capable of entering yeah. a guilty plea, which requires you know, admitting something that you've yeah. done that's wrong. I don't know whether he has that in him. But I will say this. This is the kind of document case that is very strong. Um, the government wins these kinds of cases because this does not rely on witnesses that can be cross-examined, where you can impeach their credibility or their ability to observe. It's just all based on documents. In this document, you said X, and in this document, you said not X, and they don't match up, and then you signed it. Um, these are you know, as close as you get to bulletproof charges. So if he wants to be stubborn enough and go to trial, he will be convicted. Uh, if he wants to cut his losses, he can enter a guilty plea. Uh, but one way or the other, I think by this time next year, he will be prisoner number 647839. So it's actually a rare moment where I disagree with y'all, which makes me very nervous. <laughs> but I think he's going to plead guilty. You know, wire fraud is arguably a 30-year felony here. It's at least 20 years. Money laundering is 20 now look, don't be deceived by those statutory maximum sentences. Once the guidelines are calculated, it's lower than that. And, and these are white collar crimes. But they're crimes where he has to spend some time in prison. I could see him pleading out maybe to the false statement charges, getting a low ball sentence, disappearing from public life, which would be a mercy for all of us. Um, <laughs> And I think he pleads guilty, so we'll see, right? I'll buy you guys all dinner if I'm wrong. Excellent. Good, okay. I think he's also, I would say he was a flight risk, except where is he going to flee to? He's already under indictment in Brazil. He can't go there. <laughs> what's, what's he going to do? All right, we're good. You know what always makes me feel like a superhero is when I cook dinner and my whole family really, really loves it. And much of that time when that happens, it's a HelloFresh dinner. So most recently it was uh, the chicken and balsamic vinegar over pasta. And everyone, including my new puppy, was, was, who she, <laughs> unfortunately there was none left for her to, to get, but um, it, she was excited during the preparation uh, process. Barb, do, do, you, do you use HelloFresh? I know you're a big cooker, Barb. Yeah, well, it may stun some of the members of our audience. <laughs> you know, our, our, our former colleagues, U.S. Attorney Cuz, stunned to know that I'm not much of a cook, um, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, but even I can master dinner with HelloFresh. Uh, because with HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients. At the border. So now that's lifting, and I wanna start with Barb, just to sort of give us a sense of what the lifting of this, the expiration, mm -hmm. uh, more precisely, of this rule, uh, Title 42, does, and the return of something called Title 8, what that actually means. Yeah, so Title 8 was just the status quo. This is not some you know, Biden policy. This is the way things have worked uh, for decades. But because of COVID-19, 
uh, Title 42, is, which is just a, a section of the law that says during times of an emergency, a president may declare that you know, there's an emergency and enter emergency provisions. And so what was happening is people who were coming into the country to seek asylum were immediately expelled and, and not permitted to enter the country. We were able to use that for a while and kind of have really let that linger probably a little longer than it should have. Like the COVID, you know, COVID is going to be with us maybe forever in, in small bits, the way we're dealing with it right now. But in terms of this emergency at the border that requires us to say we will not fulfill our asylum obligations pursuant to our treaties with other nations, um, we can't do that anymore. So that expired, and we're now reverting back to the status quo. So this isn't some you know radical left new program put forth by the Biden administration. It just means that we now revert to the status quo. So if people come into the country and they say, I am seeking asylum in the United States, they get under the law one, what is called a credible fear hearing, which is um, they have to say, I fear persecution in my country based on race or religion or some other political matter. Uh, and for that reason, I seek asylum in the United States. If they pass that first bit, that credible fear hearing, some don't, and they're turned around and told they have to go back. If they do, then they, they, they advance to this secondary hearing that can take is backlog by years. And so what do we do in the meantime when they're here? And so it, it, traditionally people get detained. They do not have sufficient detention facilities for everybody. So they get called what's called paroled into the country, which says you get to come in, but you're going to be on a bond. You have to check in from time to time. And you, here's your hearing date. And it may be far into the future. But because of all of the... Uh, poverty, violence, political oppression that's occurring in Mexico and other countries in Central and South America, we have this huge backlog also because of COVID-19. Huge, huge backlog of people trying to get into the country. And so that's where we are. We've reverted to the status quo, but we now have this huge crush of people who want to come in. So you're absolutely right. When this uh, expired, this reverted back. And I think it's worth noting, you said it, but I just want to underscore. Applying for asylum, seeking asylum, is legal. That is not an illegal cross. There are procedures that one needs to follow, but there is an ability to make an asylum claim. It may be denied, but that is something that uh, is normally available before Title 42 went into place. But uh, DHS Secretary Mayorkas uh, talked about these changes, made an announcement that the border is not open, and there are still some um, policies that the Biden administration are seeking to enforce, including requiring some asylum seekers to make their claims to the, the country that they first uh, enter if that's not the United States. So Joyce, tell us a little bit about what's going on and what you think about what the Biden administration is doing in response. You know, so I think it's important to acknowledge the obvious here, which is that immigration is a really tough issue. Nobody slogs through the mud for months with their three-year-old and 18-month-old kids because they had it really good back home and they just got an itch to come to the United States, right? It is a humanitarian tragedy. We are a country that has always benefited from immigration. And those people who make that trek, right? I want those people as citizens. Those are exactly the people that we, we need in this country. My experience is informed by the fact that Alabama, when I was the US attorney, 
passed an anti-immigration bill that they styled as a deport yourself bill. The goal was to make situation in Alabama so untenable for people who lacked legal status to be in the country that they would leave on their own. And they did. And this is the lesson that Alabama learned. We were challenging the statute. We were ultimately successful in getting the 11th Circuit to say that the law was unconstitutional for multiple reasons. While that was in progress, the tomatoes rotted on the vines in the field because there was no one to pick them. And that's an important lesson for people to keep in mind. At the same time, I think Barb does a good job of pointing out how, especially with the COVID backlog, the system simply lacks the capacity to deal with people. It is not possible right now in Texas to find shelter for everyone who's coming across the border and people will be released without the services that they need to find their sponsor. It is a disaster in the making. I, I would like to say that I'm comfortable with what the Biden administration is doing, but to be honest with you, I lean a little bit more on the humanitarian side of things. I get that there are political realities in place here, and the Biden administration has imposed an important um, limitation on the ability to seek asylum, which is that they require you, much like the Trump administration did, to seek asylum in the first country that you go to where you could. I, I have a little bit of a hinky about that for technical legal reasons. I just am not confident that that's consonant with international law, which I think permits you to come to this country to seek asylum here, even if you've gone through other countries. That's going to be resolved, I think. But the reality here is that this is not about bad policies being adopted by the Biden administration. They've even done some really smart things. They've built an app and people can now go on smartphones, right, and apply for asylum. And apparently that's been very effective. The problem is that your representatives and mine, yours I think are Democrats, mine are Republicans, um, have not and will continue not to do their job in Congress. Immigration is a tough issue. Nobody is getting their way 100%. What I would like to see happen is not going to see. Nonetheless, it is incumbent upon Congress to sit down and negotiate a, a resolution. A president alone cannot deal with this problem. Congress is really the only entity in government that can go ahead and come up with new laws that will work to deal with these problems. It will be an imperfect solution, there is no doubt, but it has to happen. We should all insist that our elected representatives do that. Well, that, that leads right into my question for Jill. I mean, you were, you, by the way, you were talking about how you have Republicans and they have Democrats. I don't have any <laughs> in DC. I got taxation with no representation. Um, but listen, Democrats have talked about the need to have not only better asylum policies and better legal immigration policies, but also a more secure border. Republicans have talked about the need to have a more secure border and to reform policies. So some Republicans want to limit even legal immigration. That's something different. But there is a large, there is a Venn diagram that has a bipartisan segment to it if you're listening to what they're actually saying. So Jill, what is it that prevents what Joyce was talking about 
from actually happening? And do you think it's possible that we can get there? I could make this a very short answer, no. <laughs> <laughs> but let me explain a little bit more than that. Uh, this goes back to what I said earlier about Nixon and Watergate, which is there was bipartisanship. We don't have that anymore. We have a Republican Party, if you want to call it the Republican Party, you have the MAGA Party that will, without doubt, do whatever it's ordered to do. And that means they're not going to support all the uh, immigration reform that is necessary. And Joyce is right. This is not something that President Biden can do. It's something that is only accomplishable if Congress takes action. So we have to really, all of us, press our representatives to do the right thing. In the meantime, President Biden has started to set up centers in other countries so that people can do it. Joyce mentioned the app. It's not working so well. People are saying, one, I don't have internet, I don't have a smartphone, so I can't use it. So we have to find a way that we provide people who are seeking asylum to have these kinds of tools so that they can actually apply either in another country or on a cell phone if they can borrow one from somewhere. And they're also putting more soldiers and more um, Homeland Security people at the border to prevent that, so or to prevent the illegal entry. And as Barb said, it is not illegal to apply for asylum. Uh, a little known fact, when I was in private practice, I actually developed a large immigration practice um, and tried to help people who were either seeking asylum. It, it ended up being, of course, because I was in private practice, it was mostly bringing in business executives that corporations wanted to bring in. And it was very satisfying because unlike a lawsuit where nobody is happy to pay you anything, you win, they say, well, I was right all along. Why did I have to pay you a million dollars to win? But with immigration, it was something companies were like, yeah, I, I really want this person to work for me. I'm willing to pay you to get them to come here. But I, I think you know, President Biden is doing what he can within the scope of his abilities and power, but it can't be done unless we change the immigration laws that currently exist. And that's been a problem for as long as I can remember. And it's not being done, it's not being addressed, and it is a very significant issue. And as Joyce said, the tomatoes rotted on the vine because there aren't Americans who will take the job. And so we need to get and value the diversity that has always been the richness of America. That was a nice reminder of the fact that Jill Weinbanks has had every job. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think this is all spot on. The one thing that I would add and that is frustrating to me is in this partisanship, there are too few Democrats who say exactly what is being said on this stage about the value of the people who are seeking to uh, make these asylum claims for fear, for, for fear of the political consequences. They're treating these people like some sort of political third rail. And I th personally think that that is gutless and, and unfortunate. So I would love to see lawmakers at the very least speak honestly about what is happening at the border. Jim, 
As usual, I get a chance to see you in person. Your skin is positively glowing. What's your secret? Why, thank you. I notice that everybody's skin is looking particularly good. And I'm just I perspiring in the light. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think besides that natural glow, Barb, I think what also is helping us is Osea Malibu. You know, spring is the perfect time to refresh your skincare routine. And for us, Osea's Ocean Eyes Serum was a great place to start because nothing says refreshed more than bright, wide-awake-looking eyes. And as somebody who spent the night in Chicago unsuspectingly, <laughs> um, unexpectedly, I was particularly grateful for that this morning. Um, and Jill, who never sleeps, always looks great. So you have to be using that, right? I am, and I don't ever sleep. It is definitely true. But I can say that OC. Tell us your name, where we're having brunch, and your question. I'm Margie Archer, and I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I'm so delighted you're here. I love all of you. Thank you. Um, I have a legal question. Wait, I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to be a stickler. Where are we having breakfast? Oh, brunch. Okay, so I've been trapped inside my house for about three years. Oh. So I don't have all right. great Fair uh, enough. recommendations, although there so are... So we're going to your house. Yeah. <laughs> Actually... Come on. Um, so I have a question. So with the Smartmatic and the Dominion lawsuits, I am so curious that... Okay, and this is like a really kind of maybe a dumb question, but um, is our, like, Maria Bartiromo and Tucker and some of the other characters, are they absorbing perhaps some personal liability with all the shenanigans because I couldn't find the answer to this on the internet, and I've looked. Yeah, that's not, a, that's not a dumb question at all. It's a very good one. So generally what happens in cases like this that involve people working for an employer um, is uh, the, the idea that um, it's, a, it's called respondeat superior. Generally speaking, an employer will be held jointly and several, severally liable with anybody else who is uh, found guilty. And that means that the ultimate judgment will likely be paid by the employer or the employer's insurer or something like that. So technically, even if they are on the hook for a judgment, more likely than not, the Fox Corporation would actually pay for it out of pocket based on uh, what happens. And, and generally speaking, that's a good principle, particularly in journalism, because you don't want actual journalists, which we're not talking about here. Um, <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> to fear doing their job because they might get sued and then they may, you know, lose, uh, lose their house. So that's generally what the principle is about. But I highly doubt that Tucker's going to have to open his pockets. Thank you. Why don't we shift over to this side, okay. name, hometown, and where we're having breakfast. Um, my name is Karen. I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I would say Baba Cahen is a great little place, Baba very Cahen. intimate little place. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes. I was hoping Jill could tell yeah. us what pin she's wearing today. And also, I had re read something about George Santos saying if he could just finish one term in Congress, then he'd have all the benefits for the rest. And I'm curious about him having his congressional benefit package after an indictment, and also how does that affect Trump with his um, security and all that as his case is developed? Well, I'll answer the first part of the question, which is I'm wearing a hashtag sisters-in-law pin. 
which is available on our website. <laughs> Very good product placement, so, Jill. Yes, sorry. Uh, you go to politicon.com slash merch. merch. And you can or you can find too. the link in our show notes. <laughs> So I think that that is correct, that if you finish a term, you do get some benefits, and that if, he's, if he is convicted or leaves Congress short of that first term, he will not. The question with Trump is more nuanced. He will retain his Secret Service protection for the remainder of his life, and we can understand yeah. why that's a good thing, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Y'all. Y'all, you do not want that crazy man running around without federal law enforcement peeking over his shoulder. Um, but, you know, there are situations where a criminal conviction results in the loss of federal benefits. I don't know what that precedent implies for a former president who's convicted. I assume that that will be a live conversation that we will be having in this country very soon. Thank you. Hello, welcome to Portland. Uh, my name is Jeanette Shaw and I'm from Tigard, Oregon. And as someone who wears an elected official hat, I'm a Tigard city councilor, given Trump and Santos, how do we restore faith in the elected official system? Because there's a lot of us out there who are doing really good things and doing it the right way and doing it ethically. So what would be your response? And then brunch, I forgot brunch. Uh, in Tigard, Oregon, I'd recommend Symposium Coffee. And uh, they have a mean, mean lemon loaf. Ooh. I like some coffee. I like lemon loaf. Um, Jill, you are often a font of wisdom on these sort of big picture things. Do you have thoughts about how we restore faith in the good work of many good public servants? Well, first of all, thank you for being a good public servant. It's a question of electing the right people back into government. How yes. we restore yes. is to get rid of the people who are so obviously corrupt. That's up to all of you, all of us as voters. And other than that, I, I think accountability is the other answer. And that means that Merrick Garland has to start indicting the people who are guilty. And I don't mean just Trump. There's a lot of other culprits who are involved in this. A lot of members of the Senate and the House need to be indicted. And that will go a long way to restoring faith in, in our public servants. The problem is that I am pretty sure that everyone in this room watches MSNBC and listens to us, but it's all those other people who constitute a very large part of our population. You know, you mentioned Smartmatic, which when we talked about what case I thought, we all thought was the most important of the year, that was my case, was I thought that was gonna change how news is presented because it would hold news reporting to a standard of truth. And I don't think it's worked. It hasn't worked. And there was no way that even if Dominion hadn't settled, that they would have gotten a judgment that included a um, fox going on air saying, we lied, we knew we were lying when we did it. 
That's just not going to happen. So it didn't matter if they went to trial or not. We know the facts. The people who listen to Fox don't even know there was a case. So it's a question, you know, the third part is we have to get back to somehow getting truth out there and facts to matter. I just want to add one thing. I think another important uh, part of it is folks like you governing and acting ethically and showing, uh, using that as an example of what public officials should do, particularly, particularly on the local level. I, I agree with everything Jill said about members of Congress and all of that. But the most important people carrying out the function of government yes. are in your localities and in your states. And that is what affects most people. And we are seeing increasingly, much to my horror, a lot of very well-funded campaigns to get people in those very positions yeah. to do uh, to act unethically. So I think it is it is hard. It is hard because it's harder to raise money on a local level. It is harder to run. It is harder to govern. But those are the people that we need to stand as the example to show that that's how it ought to be done. And those are the very people who, if they choose to move up and, and run for higher office after that, will become the next ethical class of people who can come to Congress and elsewhere. But it's really, it's hard work, but it's really important. Thank you for your service. Barb, I want to add one more thing, which is there's a new um, organization, a grassroots organization called Project 50. And it's actually targeting getting local people elected in all 50 states because it is the school board that will prevent your books from being banned. It is your local government who will do the right things for you. And so that's something else you might think about supporting is this grassroots movement called Project 50. Excellent. Howdy, my name's Casey Hansen of Gresham, Oregon. I'm also the former chair of the Democratic Party of Oregon. And I'm going to segue from the last comment, and I know you said no comments, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that we have Election Day coming up on Tuesday. Yes. Oh, All right. <laughs> I'll take, we'll take that. Special <laughs> district elections, school board, educational <laughs> service districts, yeah. special districts. Get out and vote. Go help your local candidates. It's so important. So thank you for allowing me that segue. Um, oh, eating. God, there's so many choices. Mother's was mentioned, gravy on North Mississippi, and if you want to head down to Clackamas County, Sunny's on Southeast 82nd is. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way, you'll have enough to take on the plane with you. <laughs> so my question is real specific in terms of, let's go to Georgia. The state legislature just passed and, and Governor Kemp just signed a law that says we can fire prosecutors. I have one simple question about that. What the hell? <laughs> That, that sounds like that was made for Joyce. So, <laughs> I think we all have that question, right? Because we have eyes. We saw what happened in Georgia after the 2020 election. We all know what Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, is investigating. The notion that you can pass a bill that targets big city DAs, which is to say, by the way, black district attorneys yeah. in Georgia, um, and that Republicans will be permitted to interrupt the will of the voters who elected those district attorneys, is, that is so anti-democratic. Um, it will be challenged, most likely the challenge 
will end up in federal court in Georgia. It could be brought in state court. Um, I am sad to say that I am very concerned about the fate of that challenge if it is in federal court in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. The Georgia state courts, I have similar concerns. I would love to believe, by the way, that we have good public servants out there who will do the right thing. But Georgia is an abject lesson on what happens when a state begins to switch sides, right? I mean, Georgia is that New South vision. It's a state that still has pockets of deep conservatism. They send Marjorie Taylor Greene to the House. They will continue to send Marjorie Taylor Greene to the House. But in Fulton County and Gwinnett and some of the other big counties, there are large swaths of Democratic voters. Perhaps the saving grace in Georgia will be that Stacey Abrams continues to work for that state. If you are looking for people to support, Fair Fight, Stacey's organization does incredible work, not just in Georgia, but across the South and the rest of the country. But I have to say that I'm deeply concerned about this, this law. I don't have anything good to say. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. And where else can it happen to? Not in Oregon, though. No, because you're all going to vote on Tuesday, so we know you're going to take care of business. Please. Hi, thank you. Karen Jocelyn, originally from the great state of O-H-I-O. <laughs> that's for you, Barb. Thank you. <laughs> neighbors. We're neighbors. Yeah, we, that's right. Um, and uh, mothers, you, you just can't beat it. You probably can't get a reservation now, so you'll find, need to find something else. But um, my, my question is, uh, it comes out of the, the recurring theme and the comments that I hear from each of you in each of these different segments, which is bipartisanship, good governance, uh, doing the right thing in Congress and representing us. I kind of lump all of this, uh, the issues with this, and, and, and want to know how do we get past it given the Citizens United, which I know is a, a simplified version of what's going on, the, the money that is there that, that isn't individually controlled. I saw behind the scenes, uh, behind the curtain in Ohio, um, in the Senate uh, about 10 years ago, how money worked for and against things. I, I didn't know that that's actually how things worked. Uh, and it's directed here, and you do this, and you get that, and you get elected. How, what do we do about that? That's my number one question, because I see that the only way for change to really happen. Yeah, that's a very significant question, my neighbor from Ohio. <laughs> I share your pain. Um, you know, I, I've actually been looking at this issue a lot, because you know, Citizens United, as we all know, is the Supreme Court opinion where the court held that um, uh, political contributions are speech and therefore protected by the First Amendment, and it extends to corporations, corporations. Yeah. and other organizations, that they, are, they have the same rights as people. And that was a really seismic change, and it really opened the floodgates to these super PACs, uh, and you can't put limits on them. They can um, do ads. They can't coordinate with a candidate, but they can say good things about a candidate, or they can say bad things about a candidate's opponent. And they have names like, you know, Mothers for a Red, White, and Blue America. And it turns out it's just, you know, one billionaire who's, you know, probably Harlan Crow who's behind, <laughs> behind the whole thing. Um, but, you know, I, there are some solutions, I think, because although that case 
is going to stand unless we amend the Constitution, which seems difficult and unlikely. There are some things that can be done, like requiring transparency into who is behind uh, Mothers for a Red, White, and Blue America. Who are these people? So you can't stop them, but I think if you could at least label them, then at least Americans would not be fooled into thinking that, why, it's just grassroots Americans who oppose uh, reasonable gun restrictions, right? Like, we know it's not you know, normal Americans. It's, uh, you know, PACs funded by the NRA or funded by gun manufacturers and other kinds of things. So I think more laws that require more transparency can at least help us to see through who are these billionaire financiers. I don't know if others have input on that topic. It's a tough one. It's very tough, and I guess I remember because the restrictions on campaign financing came after Watergate because of the mm -hmm. amount of money that was in White House safes. There wouldn't have been a Watergate break-in if they hadn't had so much money they didn't have to say, is this a good use of our campaign money to break into the Watergate, to break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office? They would have spent it on ads. They would have spent it on whatever. So I, I'm a big believer that we need to restrict how much money goes into it. And there is no answer right now unless we change the Supreme Court. I mean, they undid Roe versus Wade. Why can't we undo Citizens United with a new court? So let's keep electing Democrats. Let's get a Democratic Senate and House and President, and then maybe we can get something done. Thank you. My name is Ross Kaplan. I am not related to Roberta Kaplan. <laughs> or Judge Kaplan. <laughs> or Judge Kaplan. However, I'm a distant relative of Abe Fortas. Oh, wow. So my question is, what is going to be the outcome of the ethical transgressions of a certain Clarence Thomas? Oh, don't get us started. Okay. We have our, our producers who are here, you know, for like the past three episodes, we've talked about this. Like, are you going to talk about them again? Yes, we are. <laughs> yes, yes, we are. First, you have a breakfast recommendation for us. I'm sorry to be a stickler I don't on this. do brunch. Oh, all right. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. It doesn't do breakfast. Mr. Kaplan does not mess around. So, what, uh, what do you think? We're, how does yeah, this end? Let me um, say the really horrible, depressing message here, and then I'm hoping that my sisters have something more uplifting to say. Um, Joe Biden is the President of the United States. Joe Biden will appoint a replacement for any empty seat on the Supreme Court. I am afraid that that means that there will be no accountability forthcoming for Clarence Thomas, that politics will be permitted to trump ethics. And I think it's a terrible shame because it means that the legitimacy of the Supreme Court won't just be called into question. It will be destroyed at a point in time where we desperately need that court to have credibility. And as someone who's, you know, I spent um, a lot of my life as an appellate litigator. That's really a painful realization for me. We deserve better from the institution. If John Roberts cared about his legacy, he would find a way to do something. I just don't think he has the appetite. Do you guys yeah. have something more uplifting no. to say? <laughs> no, I really no. don't. I mean, it's just appalling. When you're a public servant, or you've had our public you can't take free stuff. 
Like, it's as simple as that. And not only is he taking free stuff, he's taking a lot of free stuff. Very expensive free stuff, right? I mean, trips For and the decades. home and the tuition. And the, the Bible. $19,000 Bible. Yeah, it's, it's all just uh, really disturbing. And I don't know that, you know, the right thing to do would be for him to resign, for the court to adopt a code of ethics, for them to persuade him to get out because he is so besmirching the court. But as Joy said, I, I don't see that happening when his party is out of power. You. you know, Robert could question. possibly not assign him any opinions as a form of. It's the only control he has. But as you it's said, he's not going to still vote. Uh, he still votes, and, and Roberts doesn't have the appetite to do it. Please. Hi, I'm Sheila Bricey. I'm from Bothell, Washington. Took the train down with my best friend for the weekend. Wonderful. Thank you. The best food. Oh, my God. We just ate here for brunch today. The screen door. Yeah. Wow. Wow. We might have a winner. Okay. Okay. That one's winning. Okay. And it's fine southern food. Oh. Yeah. Oh. It is so good. So good. Thank you. So I'm going to change to a different Trump charge. Alvin Bragg's yes. two-part question. What do you think of the charges and is it going to work or whatever? And do you think he has superseding indictments that he hasn't brought out against that? Mm. And is that possible? I am not a lawyer at any level, but it's just been bugging me. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a quick stab at it and others can chime in. Uh, number one, what do I think of it? It's not the biggest case in the world, but it isn't like all the prosecutors with all these pending investigations get together and say, who's got the biggest case in the world? You go first, you go first, you go first. But it is a case that Alvin Bragg would have brought if it were anybody but Donald Trump. He's brought that, that very charge, that falsification of business records, 30 times since he became the Manhattan DA. To give Trump a pass under these circumstances really would be to say that a former president gets special treatment. And he doesn't. And so it's not a big case. In fact, I doubt that Donald Trump will get prison time for it uh, because these are the kind of white-collar slap-on-the-wrist charges that, that is the typical outcome. But I don't think you can ignore it uh, just because this is Donald Trump. So that's the first thing. Do I think he has superseding charges? I don't. I think that if he had, you know, they've had plenty of time to work on it. I think if they had more uh, to come, I think we would have seen it by now. I don't know if Joyce or others have thoughts on you that. You know, I agree with you 100%. I have maybe one tiny gloss on what you're saying. The tough nut to crack with Trump is that nobody ever seems to want to cooperate against him. And I wonder if the longer that his CFO spends, you know, in Rikers Island, if there might not be some movement there. I think the one way that there might be superseding charges would be if Weisselberg decides to cooperate. But I'm not optimistic. Thank you for Screen Door, though. We like, we like that. That was popular. Yeah, right? that's a round yeah. of applause. Please. Hi. Um, my name's Judy Silk, and I live in Portland now. Didn't always, but I love it. Um, and I was going to recommend Jam on Hawthorne, and I'm buying. <laughs> well, Jam sounds like the winner to me. And I stood up here all this time, and I'm going to ask, even though the Supreme Court was my question, I guess in more general terms, I have two daughters, and I really don't know how to tell them to have any hope. 
Tell them that they are the hope. Yeah. Yeah. That they are. I mean, one thing, listen, I, I, I don't want it to sound like a cliche, but one of the things that I've been so buoyed by in recent years is the fact that young people get it. Young people yeah. get it. They are horrified. They are concerned. They're concerned not just about corruption and, and government and lack of accountability. They're concerned about climate change. They are concerned uh, about everything that they see the generations before them messing up. And I think you know they're concerned about gun violence. They're concerned about actual things that are affecting us as Americans. They are appalled that the number one killer of children in America is guns, that other countries are actually giving travel warnings against coming to the United States because of its gun They are mobilizing. I've been so inspired by so many young people, including you know, my nieces and nephews and my stepkids and who are the hope of the future. That's who I'm pinning my hopes in. So I hope that you tell them that they are, they are the difference and, and that they are the change makers. 9 a.m. You know, Kim says that so beautifully. I, I just thought that that was perfect. And I want to just add one thing, um, which I think is this. The elusive sector of the, the electorate has always been young voters. Something that we know to be true from the numbers in Alabama is that our red state would be a blue state if we could just get 10% more of 18 to 25 year olds to vote. Yep. Encourage the young people in your world to vote. Take them out to brunch for free if they will vote with you. Um, but we've, we've got to make it you know, a, a doable thing and, and something that people feel bad if they don't find time to vote. It's horrible if you live in a state with one day of voting and you've got to miss work and lose income to go vote on a Tuesday. It's just got to be what we do. We can't let the people trying to suppress the vote win. That, that has to be underscored. That's called um, in The Emancipator, which I worked on for two years. That was one of the uh, pieces that we had in there. It was called The Other Swing Voter. The real swing vote, people still talking about these independent voters that can be, that, that's, that's, that's an illusion. The swing voters are young people, particularly young people of color, who are deciding between voting or not. And those are the people that need to be convinced. It's, I mean, it's just statistically, that is who is gonna decide elections, so. Um, I, just, I, I just got a, a, a word in my ear, through uh, my earpiece that we have time for one more question from each side. And I'm very sorry to all the people who've been waiting in line. We'll take one from each side, and I'm very sorry we're not gonna be able to take any more questions. We only have this place until uh, 10 and then the lights go out. And so we, we don't want that to happen. We don't want to stampede as we get out of here. So I'm very sorry to the people who've been standing in line uh, whose questions we're not going to get to. But you but can email us at sistersinlaw.politicon.com. <laughs> or send us tweets. Yeah. Put us on Twitter. So I'm sorry about that, but we'll take one question from this side and one from this side, and then we'll have to uh, call it a night. So sorry about that. But please come forward and uh, ask your question. No, get together and ask one question. Teamwork. All right, all right. <laughs> I just have been waiting to say that um, actually my name is Joyce Vance. Whoa! So, uh, All right. No. All right. Fair enough. We'll take and Joyce I'm Vance. I'm a big time knitter. So. <laughs> wow. But um, going back to some of the questions asked before, 
All I've been hearing is everything that um, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court can't do. You know, that he doesn't have any regulatory power over what's happening. So what is the point of being of the Chief Justice, and what can we do as individuals to change this dynamic? Because it feels helpless in some ways to change this, because we don't have any power to take these guys out of office. Oh, I think all we're doing is giving bad news. So I think it's, it's <laughs> but it's important because I think that people don't understand that. They hear Chief Justice of the United States. That's his title. It's not even Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. It's Chief Justice of the United States. He's the top jurist in our nation. But honestly, under the rules of the court, the only difference between a Chief Justice and the other eight justices are a few administrative functions that he has, like assigning who writes an opinion, it, and only if he's in the majority of the opinion. If he's not in the majority of the opinion, the most senior justice in the majority gets to do that assignment. Um, he sits largely as a figurehead atop the judicial conference, which does set rules for lower courts, not the Supreme Court. He does stuff like, you know, swears in members of the bar. Like, it's, it's literally a handful of administrative functions that he has. His vote counts the same as everyone else's. He writes opinions just like everyone else's. And that's really it. So the one thing he had was the bully pulpit. As the Chief Justice, as somebody who claims to care very much about the court as an institution, he had the ability to speak on this, to say, to the other justices, no, we're going to hold ourselves to the same standard. I want you to back this. And he didn't do that. He whiffed when he had that opportunity. So what's the recourse? Sadly, there isn't one. Well, Congress has a role to play well, here, yes, though, right? Yes. So we're not completely out of luck. Now, Congress is not getting a lot done these days, no. but they are a potential check on the court in terms of imposing a code of ethics or you know, making other rules, holding them accountable, bringing them in for hearings. If they had the political uh, wherewithal to do that, they could do it. So there, yeah. there is a, a, a legal check on them. They're just choosing not to use it. Right. You know, from an institutional point of view, although it's frustrating to see the Chief Justice having no ability to act here, or at least um, a lack of willingness to seize his bully pulpit, institutionally, though, I'm not unhappy that we have a situation where the Chief Justice lacks power to enforce rules over the other justices, just like I'm happy that the chief justice in every circuit doesn't have power over the other judges in that circuit. Each of our judges acts independently, and they, in essence, act as a check and balance on each other. The problem isn't really the system. The problem is that we have at least one justice who is not committed to the rule of law. Because if judges believe in the integrity of the courts and the system that they serve in, then you don't have a Clarence Thomas who's looking for every way he can to grift off of the office. That's the problem here. I think Barb is right. Ultimately, Congress is going to be forced to ask and to adopt rules, but they will be forward-looking. And I think Clarence Thomas is the problem that just does not go away for a bit longer. Well, let's, let's end on that happy note. Um, but before we go, we have a favor to ask of you. Our uh, overseers have asked us if we could uh, take a selfie with all of you. And so we're going to turn up the lights. We'd like you to stand. We're going to stand and face this way so we can all be in the picture. And thank you very much.
And the cat. such a blast, wasn't it? Oh my it? goodness, it was amazing being in front of an audience, and the people in Portland were so incredible. You know, the suggestions that they had for breakfast, I wish we were going to be here for a week. <laughs> yeah, oh I wrote them down, I'm heading there tomorrow. I'm coming back so that I can do it. I loved it. The audience was so responsive. They laughed, they cheered, it was great. Yeah. But it was the energy in the room, right? I yeah. mean, that's yeah. what we're doing. That's America, that's us coming back and making sure that democracy survives. I don't know, something was getting under your skin, Joyce, because I've never heard you use that much profanity in one <laughs> session. <laughs> Did I use profanity? 